Why do you do these things? I don't understand why you do these things. Don't lie to me! I don't want to hurt you. I only want to talk to you, okay? Yeah, you can trust me. You know you can. Welcome to Now Playing's Maniac Retrospective Series. You shouldn't be so scared, timid man. You should take off your coat, Steve, for a little while. Hosted by Stuart. Oh, you're so good. You know, I like this with my clothes on. Marjorie. Please don't scream. You're so beautiful. And Arnie. Why did you need those other men? They didn't love you. I did. I loved you, I needed you. There were so many men. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You think they don't know? They do? I heard it, and I know. Listener discretion is advised. I told you not to go out tonight, didn't I? Every time you go out, this kind of thing happens. Today we're discussing Maniac, starring Joe Spinell, Caroline Monroe, Abigail Clayton, Kelly Piper, and directed by William Lustig. This is Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who's been a bad boy again. Stuart in LA. And this is Marjorie. Merry Christmas, guys. It's December. We must be watching some cheesy slasher from the 80s, right? That's what we seem to do here. First Silent Night, Deadly Night. And all right, how does this constitute a Christmas movie? It takes place at Christmas. There's a Christmas wind-up decoration in Frank's apartment. (laughs) I saw a wreath. He puts up a tree next to some bloody mannequins, but this is stretching, guys. This ain't a Christmas movie. It opened December 26th. I think it counts. I really think (laughs) this counts. All right. Well, I don't mind doing it because I've already been on the record as someone that consumed all the horror I could in the 1980s, but Maniac was too much for me. It was that poster. That video box scared the crap out of me. I was afraid to rent Maniac back in the VHS days because I don't know if you've seen the artwork, but I'm half convinced that's why this movie became a cult item. It has just the torso of a man holding a bloody scalp, a big knife, and an even bigger erection bulging out of his pants. It is a shocker when you see that poster. Well, you sound like the National Organization of Women People who protested. I am not convinced that that's an erection. It is light and shadow. Wait a second. Wait a second. That is clearly, (laughs) clearly Trouser Snake. Yeah. I mean, that's not even kind of Arnie. I mean, you're just not looking at it. I'm looking at it and... I can see the argument to be made, but hey, some people claim that the grass skirts on Kippendorf's tribe was supposed to represent long pubic hair, so I think people see what they want to see. Arnie, the people that did the art said they gave him a big boner. Joe Spinell was mad, not because they gave him a big erection, but because they didn't put his face on this poster, but he, even he was saying, I got a giant dick! 
Well, he was known to say that otherwise than this movie, too. He was kind of a filthy son of a bitch. But we'll talk about Joe Spinell. Definitely. Uh, probably the other factor for why this became a cult in the 80s. But I missed it in the 80s. Have you guys seen Maniac before now? I have not. And I don't know how I s- managed to skip it because, Stuart, you and I probably went to the same video stores and, well, with Arnie, too, and tried to rent things. And I would always rent horror. And I'm wondering if that image scared me and somehow I just never got it. I had no memory of this art, of this movie. I mean, I did hang out in the horror section of video stores back when they used to classify movies, and there were so many. But keep in mind, I was getting into horror in the mid to late 80s. By that point, this movie would have been seven years old. There were so many nameless, older, grindhouse kind of films in the video store. This one made no impression on me whatsoever, and... I'd never even heard of it until, Stuart, you brought this up last year as something to do because of an Elijah Wood remake. That was my first time even hearing about this film. And watching it, I know we've covered a lot of horror, a lot of slashers, a lot of ghost stories here at Now Playing, but I think this is our first time going into the splatter kind of horror. Yeah, you know, the English have a term called video nasty, and I just feel like you can't even call this horror. It's more than a slasher. It is a video nasty. It is a grimy, filthy, feel-bad experience. Keep in mind, Evil Dead was a video nasty, and I think Evil Dead has nothing on this. Yeah, admittedly. Gene Siskel famously walked out of this movie at the half-hour mark and proclaimed that if any movie deserved an X for violence, it was it. And I get his point. This movie does feel like violence porn. They did release it unrated. They did put out an R-rated cut and strangely got immensely good reviews on their restraint and how full of suspense (laughs) it was and all of that. Uh, yeah, not what they intended, but let's talk a little bit about intent here, because this movie was born, really, of Joe Spinell. Do you guys know Joe? He's a character actor that came to prominence, if you can call it prominence. He was in every movie of the 70s, I'll put it that way, from The Godfather to William Friedkin movies. He almost was in Jaws. He talked his way into being into all the American-Italian Hollywood productions of that era. This is a guy who I've seen a bunch of times, but his name had absolutely no recognition to me. But we've covered him on Now Playing before. It was only me and here with Brock and Jacob when we covered the Rocky series. He was the gangster in Rocky and Rocky 2. He was a good friend of Sly's, it turns out. Yeah, he actually nurtured that career. Sly wouldn't have gotten to make Rocky had Spinell not nurtured him and given him a home when he didn't have one and give him a lot of money. Yeah, and Stallone repaid the favor when he was promoting Rocky II at press junkets. He would wear Maniac t-shirts. I honestly kept having trouble because he looks so much like Father Guido Sarducci in this movie. (laughs) I had a hard time. I think he's the spitting image. And who I thought it was before I looked it up was Ron Jeremy. Yes! He looks so much like Ron Jeremy. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's why they went with that poster bulge. But the one that I get off of this movie, it's it's not a contemporary reference. Ron Jeremy is? (laughs) Yeah, he is. A a sweaty, greasy Edgar Allan Poe is what I really think about. (laughs) That he just looks like someone that belongs and only belongs in a horror film. But he did many types of films. He played many types of characters in bit parts. 
He was hanging out with a production coordinator who had been working with Dario Argento. And for years, they would go to movies and talk about, when am I going to get my starring role? When am I going to get to direct? And so they decided that Joe Lustig's directorial debut and Joe Spinell's leading role debut would be Maniac. Basically, the deal was Joe would be responsible for the character and the motives and the performance. And Lustig would come up with all the kills. But they kind of launched into this with $48,000 and not a whole lot else. I mean, just the dumb bravado of being young and willing to do whatever it took to get their debut made. It worked for one of them. I mean, I've seen other William Lustig films. Maniac Cop and Maniac Cop. Two, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was Tarantino's first choice for directing Natural Born Killers. Yeah, but that was back even before Reservoir Dogs. Yes. That was before there were other choices. <laughs> yeah, Hollywood had other ideas here. But Lustig is a cult film director. Spinell is a cult film actor. And this is a cult movie. Arnie, why don't you tell them whatever there is to of the plot and we can get into it. New York is being terrorized by a serial killer. He stalks women and cuts off their scalps. If women are with boyfriends, the men are killed as well. Police are widening their manhunt. What they don't realize is they're just looking for Frank, a middle-aged man with severe mommy issues. Frank finds himself needing to kill, and he takes the scalps of women back to his apartment where he puts them atop female mannequins to make them look like his victims. And he talks to the mannequins as if they were the people and still alive. But one woman seems to escape Frank's wrath, for reasons I'm sure we'll speculate about, and that is Anna, a photographer who snaps a shot of Frank in Central Park. Frank follows her home, and the two actually start to date, though Frank's homicidal urges cannot be fully abated as he follows Rita, one of Anna's models, back to her apartment and kills her. Frank accompanies Anna to the model's funeral, and while there, says he wants to stop and put flowers on his mother's grave. But at the gravesite, Frank is overcome with his insanity and starts to attack Anna, who fights back, grabbing a burial shovel and cutting Frank's arm with it. Anna escapes, and Frank returns to his apartment where his mannequins seem to come to life, all of his previous victims, and start to tear Frank limb from limb after stabbing him. The police enter Frank's apartment to find the man in bed, a knife in his chest. They walk away as Frank's eyes pop open. He's not dead yet as credits roll. Now, I mentioned the fact that William Lustig was responsible for all of the kills we're going to see in this movie. This movie largely exists, as you can tell from this plot summary, less as a story and more as a bunch of inventive deaths. I think each one was ripped from the headlines, either from pop culture or from an actual serial killer act. And this first one, the opening of the movie, it was the whole manifesto. The whole idea of Maniac was born of the idea of doing Jaws on land. So where else are you going to start but the beach? That is very fitting. When I saw this opening with this kind of grimy film stock and everything, and the I know this came out in 80 and 81, but it still has a very 70s feel. I saw that scene and I immediately thought the opening of Jaws, the way Jaws started with that couple on the beach and the woman goes out swimming and gets killed here. The man goes out for firewood and the woman gets killed. You're damned if you go in the water, you're damned if you don't. But Jaws on land, I don't see that beyond this opening because what I view this movie as 
is a complete ripoff of Halloween. And the Blu-ray that I watched of this is packed with features of people protesting horror of the time. Halloween came out in the late 70s, and this was the time when all the derivatives were finally starting to hit theaters. Friday the 13th, and Maniac, and Dress to Kill. All of these slasher films and splatter films were starting to hit theaters. And we've talked on this show forever, especially you, Stuart, in our first Halloween review, how that itself is a derivative of Psycho. I mean, that's what this is, right? Maniac, Psycho, pretty much synonyms, a guy with mommy issues who kills women. Is that not Norman Bates? Yes, absolutely. At its core, when you look through all of the different influences, at the root of just about every slasher film is Ed Gein and Psycho. And yeah, this is Psycho in reverse. The difference is Hitchcock felt like you needed to see a sweet boy who romanced a woman, and then slowly we learned that he heard voices and killed people and and was crazy. Here's the reverse. Here we start with, yeah, this guy, this beast of a man coming up and slashing the throats of two innocents, and then by the end of this, they're going to ask us to cry for him. When the movie starts, though, I really thought we were going to just watch a Friday the 13th whodunit because we never see Frank's face during the beach kills. We see hands, we see a throat slit. It's the work of Tom Savini, who also did do Friday the 13th. I didn't know that when watching, but I was just thinking Friday the 13th and that we'd be having a whodunit and who is the maniac. And little did I know, 10 minutes later, they're going to tell us who the maniac is. Not 10 minutes, 10 seconds. I mean, it's instantly. I mean, as soon as this beach kill is over, he wakes up screaming. And I thought they were going for more of a Zodiac Killer vibe since a couple got killed at the first kill. Because Zodiac Killer killed a lot of couples, and it was very timely. I was just creeped out by the... Yes. The constant groan moan type of wheeze breath that he has, like some kind of advanced emphysema had plagued him. Joe Spinell looms large over this, and I think it takes a while to learn why he's doing it. I mean, maybe that's the mystery, but really, from the second kill, we kind of get a whole lot. I mean, he has this sad life. He lives in an apartment. Is he the superintendent of the building? He seems to have no other job or source of income other than maybe an inheritance or something. He has no job. When he steps outside, he doesn't go for coffee. He doesn't go to a job. He has no hobbies. He goes out to kill every time he walks out his front door. I just figured it wasn't interesting enough to show when it wasn't part of the story. I didn't ever assume he was unemployed. I just figured that they were focusing on his kills and heavy breathing. I didn't believe him, but at one point he says he's a painter and does abstracts and things. I never see him really paint, but he does say that. I think it was somewhere on one of the bonus features that I watched that they did actually intend him to be the superintendent of the building, but just either never filmed because this was a gorilla down and dirty shoot, or if they filmed it, they cut any scenes referencing it. Yeah, his job seems to be the murder of women. (laughs) At one point, he comes home with a body bag and somebody's coming out of his building and says, hey, you can do some Christmas shopping. He's friendly with people that he lives with. So it leads me to believe that he he must have some role in that apartment building. But yeah, he has one pursuit and that is to scalp women. Well, he has a second. He wants to get laid, right? I mean, I wasn't 100% sure he was the killer because he woke up screaming. And 
we cut to a scene of a couple of prostitutes and somebody's picking them up. I couldn't even tell it was Frank because it's a guy kind of muttering and in dark clothes and glasses. But he seems to want sex. I think he actually wants sex at the start of it. But then he just can't and ends up killing the women? Yes. There's an impotence issue. They they have a million ways in which they show that. He's often behind glass looking at mannequins. I mean, I think that's the most literal metaphor that they use. And here, yeah, he takes a hooker upstairs into this hotel, and he's very disengaged at first. He's just kind of lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. She's posing like a magazine model. And then he briefly gets aggressive. He gets on top of her, only to flop to the side. He cannot get an erection in a live woman's presence. But he must have wanted something. I mean, he paid for the ultimate. I don't know what the ultimate is. I had to look up 80s hooker slang because I didn't know what French was. I didn't know what around the world was. French turns out to be blowjob. Wait, there's a reference website about 80s hooker slang? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. The internet has everything. Yes, it does. So what's around the world? Yes. That was left to my imagination. I'm guessing anal. Okay. I'm thinking regular is just straight sex for $25. That's really cheap, especially you're talking about New York. Everything's more expensive in New York. (laughs) 50 was French and regular. So I think that's like half and half. For 75, she'll take you around the world. Okay. I, I don't know what that exactly would be. It is having sex... With a woman in all of her holes and starting and ending in the same hole. Ah. So you've got some ATM action going on there. Or MTA. <laughs> and then what would the ultimate be? Killing her, maybe. <laughs> maybe she knew. Now, I don't think this was based on any real killing, but it's kind of ironic. They were filming this scene in this hotel. It was all found locations. They didn't permit these things. They just rented a room in a... Times Square Hotel, and sure enough, if the cops didn't come banging down the doors looking for someone that had decapitated a hooker, it was only because they had cameras that they didn't get arrested. But yeah, this is stripped from the headlines of New York. They were in a place where this kind of grimy murder was commonplace. I thought for sure that he'd be on the run from cops after this one because everybody sees him go up to the room with the hooker. There's the other hooker. There's the hotel clerk who seems very familiar with the hookers and knows what that room's being rented for. She asked for her favorite room. They're usually on the tape. But if you see this guy go up to the room and then the guy leaves the room and then the woman is dead in the room, I don't know that that leaves a lot of questions. So I figure they got to be after him after that. New York's very large, Arnie. It'd be hard to find him. Yeah, and like I said, commonplace. It's setting the mood for New York of the era. And I gotta say, I'm a sucker for it. I mean, I love movies set in this time. I'm a horror fan and honestly, I can't think of a better representation of hell than 1980s New York. I mean, Cruising, Taxi Driver, The Warriors. I love all of those movies just for the way they photograph the city at night. And I'm really digging this movie for that reason. It has got a grime and filth on this that's, it's remarkable. Yes, Benell actually had a minor role in Taxi Driver, and I find it funny because in this movie he goes, you talking to me? (laughs) I'm sure that wasn't an accident. And another thing they borrowed from there was the film processing. They had amateur film stock. They were shooting on 16 millimeter, but they were able to work a deal with the same people that processed the negative of Taxi Driver. And that's why this movie looks so good. It's remarkable to me that a a shitty 16 millimeter film where they had minimal lights and 
shot, run and gun style without permits. They have something this good looking. It was largely by accident. It was largely because the people processing their negative could do tricks that the camera people could not. Let's say good looking with a grain of salt there. I mean, compared to what other films at the time are, I mean, compared to even Friday the 13th, yes, but this movie is grainy. The film, at one point, I was more distracted because I thought my projector went bad because <laughs> I thought a pixel was out. There's a white dot in like the bottom right corner of the screen for a good 10 minutes. I mean, this is... Not a preserved negative that got a digital transfer here. Well, I got bad news for you, Arnie. I know that everyone thinks Blu-ray is the premium format. The reviews are, don't watch this Blu-ray, that it was a horrible transfer job. If you watch the DVD, it looks much better. Huh. I can't imagine it looking worse, that's for sure. I mean, it looked pretty bad, given that they did give it the Blu-ray treatment. I hoped for more. No, from what I understand, it's an inferior transfer, and a lot of people were unhappy with the way it looked. But uh, the DVD, the 30th anniversary release that they had, I was stunned, really, that the film looked as good as it did. And to give some credit to the camera people as well, I think it's well composed, too, here. I mean, I think they're telling you things in composition. When he is on top of her and it's squirting blood, I I think, again, it's another metaphor for his impotence. We understand that his urge to kill is really an unfulfilled sexual desire. And is that commonplace? Absolutely. That's a stereotype of serial killers. But we at least get from this first kill everything we need to know. He comes home to an altar to his mother, or we're told it's his mother. I don't know. It's a very young-looking woman with a cigarette in her mouth. It could just as well be an ad for Cools that he cut out. (laughs) You know, he's got a lot of models and all cut up on his wall, but he claims that's his mother, and he is talking to her, I believe, or she's talking to him through all of this interior-exterior voiceover back and forth. I was creeped out, though, after he chokes the hooker to death, the scalping. Oh, boy. Oh, that was a nice touch. I loved how crazy and creepy and unsettling it was because you didn't expect it. Because you think, oh, he couldn't get it up, so he killed the hooker because he was mad or whatever. Then he starts talking about his mom, and he seems genuinely upset that he killed her. Then he goes and scalps her, and it's so delightfully slow and bloody. I mean, I've seen Savini's trick before. I I never at one point thought it was real, but the peeling back of the scalp looked amazing for the time. I mean, remember, Savini, for anyone who may not know and heard our previous reviews, this is the guy who was coming off of Dawn of the Dead, too, and had done some really great gore in that Romero flick. And I think they were lucky to get him for this. He's probably as much of a star of this film as Frank. Blame a broken heart and a girlfriend in Philadelphia. He didn't want to go home. He had just finished filming Friday the 13th. He ran into Lustig and Lustig agreed to put him up and even give him a part in the movie. He's the next kill that we get. Basically, he got the part because he had a fake head of himself already. Well, everyone does, right? (laughs) I'm still waiting for mine. Maybe Santa will bring it this year. Ah. This kill is when I knew I was giving the movie a recommend. I'll go ahead and just spoil it. This kill, whatever else the movie did, this was... Tremendous. This was an amazingly, amazingly great 
effect, great makeup work. This is why Tom Savini is awesome. This is on his, gotta be on his greatest clip reel, right? I mean, I think this is the effect that might have made him. It's better than anything in Friday the 13th, and they always mention his name in those movies. Yeah, I gotta think that this is the effect, though, that gave it an X. Friday the 13th was a Paramount picture. They weren't going with an X. This, I mean, what happens is, I'm guessing not a lot of people have seen it who are maybe listening to this review. Frank jumps up on the hood of a car with a double-barreled shotgun and shoots Tom Savini in the head, and... I mean, that head just pops like a freaking balloon. It was such a good kill and so unexpected. The fact that he shot him in the head, though, makes the next death, which is, I mean, Tom Savini is in this car with the girl. Not his girl, because she talks about how her boyfriend's going to miss her. But after Tom Savini's dead, Frank stalks this woman with the shotgun. And I think it's made so much worse because we just saw what the shotgun did. And they draw it out. He's like pointing the gun at her. It is so rare that I'm tense during a movie. But I know he wants a scalp. So I'm not sure if he's really going to blow her head off or not. But I'm actually in suspense during this scene. I'm like, is he going to do it? No, no, he's not going to do it. He's going to try to rape her. Oh, my God, he did it. Yeah, this one was inspired by Son of Sam. If you remember 76, New York was filled with Berkowitz killings. He went around with shotguns and killed people in cars like this. This is basically a repeat of something that had just happened in New York four years prior. Wow, I had no idea of that. I'm not sure how, after seeing what happened to Savini's head, he would get a scalp off of this girl, although he does play with where the gun's pointing, too. As long as you shoot from the neck down, you're going to get a good scalp. Yeah, but I really, that tension there with the gun, this is the high point of the film for me, right here. Unfortunately, it's fairly early in. It's still in the first 30 minutes of what is a very short film, under 90 counting credits, but this here... Again, we don't have a lot of motive. We don't have a lot of story. I was wondering how the hell we're going to review this movie because all there is is kills. And I couldn't imagine what the plot would be. We kind of got him muttering as to why he would be a killer or things. I knew it was a guy with mommy issues going out and killing women. But at this point, I thought that's all this movie would be is the ultimate grindhouse just blood on the teeth kind of film. It's not much more than that, Arnie, but at the 33 minute mark, we do get something of a change up. We get introduced to Anna. And I think that Anna is supposed to be, I guess, in slasher speak, the last girl, the one that gets away, the one that he most wants and covets. Originally, it was supposed to be Dario Argento's wife, She was caught up in a production in Italy and could not come. And so basically Joe Spinell called all of his connections and had just made a Star Wars ripoff with Caroline Monroe, who we've covered before. She was uh, one of the bad Bond villainesses in Spy Who Loved Me. Not a star, but certainly a name. And could not only bring some notoriety to this picture, she could bring $100,000 more to the budget. They had $100,000 for this movie? (laughs) Surprise. I figured 5,000, maybe 25,000. No, no, no. This is a much better looking movie than that. I mean, keep in mind, they're shooting an exposing film. That in and of itself would make a $5,000 film impossible. No, they had $48,000 and all of a sudden they had $148,000. But the deal was, Caroline was married to a man who insisted on being producer and as producer, he insisted on his wife's part being expanded. So we get this very bizarre Beauty and the Beast love story. All of a sudden, this antisocial guy who never goes out and who is 
driven by voices in his head to kill is taking a Italian photographer on a date to Clam Casino. This is a little bit odd. I, a little? We're introduced to Anna when she takes his photo in Central Park. And I'm like, well, he's now going to kill her because... He's afraid of being spotted. Yes, that's exactly what I thought, is I thought, because he went over and looked at her bag and saw her address, I thought, well, she's dead. Yeah, I just thought she'd be the next kill and one that engaged him. Now, take out the money reasons. Take out that they had to expand her part. Why do you think Frank wouldn't kill her? And I know you say they expanded the part, maybe some, but I think this has to be the plot of the movie. This is where story kicks in. He finds somebody who he's not going to kill or he's going to draw out the kill. I'm very confused what it is about her that attracts him and keeps the killer at bay. Well, I saw something very different. Uh, You're saying that he thought that he had been caught on camera and needed to hide the evidence. Well, he could have done that when he goes knocking on the door. She's in the dark room developing that very negative. Well, that's what I thought just during when she was taking the photo. I thought that's where the movie would go. After that, I'm not sure why he does what he does. I think that he has been seen. This is a man that has been invisible, that could literally walk around. Keep in mind, Slashers of the period wear masks, right? They don't show their face. I mean, Michael Myers, Jason, you got to put something in front of your face. And this guy, no, his face is his only mask. And she thinks it's worthy of taking a picture. She is a successful Italian photographer. She usually does fashion models. I mean, for most of this, we see her at shoots with, you know, women and modeling lingerie. But she saw something in him worth photographing. And I think that that is what develops whatever you can say of this romance. Yeah, when they go out to dinner, though, what a creepy pickup line. You're the most beautiful woman I've seen since my mom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is just Joe Spinell riffing. They didn't want to do this. Lustig himself, the director, says, these scenes don't work. I cringe when I watch them. But, you know, he didn't say it. But basically, they had to do this because of the money. And they had to give her a part, you know, that gave her some lines. She couldn't just be stalked and screaming. She had to, to act. But, yeah, I do think that Joe is just kind of a card. I think that if he went on a date with a woman. This is what it would look like. You know, he would make these kind of comments. And apparently he was very close to his mother in that way. Yeah, there's like a one-hour documentary on the 30th anniversary set that I watched about this guy. The difference between him and this character is this character was caught killing. I don't know that Joe Spinell killed anyone, but the mommy issues, the sexual issues, the money issues. I mean, this guy sounds pretty creepy in real life. And like, this could be just one of his daytime fantasies. He's a weird man. Yeah, no doubt about it. Gregarious, life of the party, but probably someone that would drive you mad if you hung out with him too long. All of his friends say that, you know, half the time you you love the guy for what he does and the other half you're wanting to kick his ass because he's pissed you off so badly. And I think that that's what works here for the character. I think Joe is really the heart of this movie. If you had had just someone anonymous, if they had kept it a mystery and we didn't know who the maniac was, this movie would be nearly unwatchable. It's because we can look at Joe and it because he's so committed to this crazy, dank, little nothing of a movie that it makes it into anything worth watching. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a totally different movie if we weren't following it from Frank's point of view. You couldn't have made the movie you made and keep him anonymous. But I didn't know what movie I was about to watch my first time seeing it. 
But Anna doesn't change his methods too much because next we get, you talked about New York. I was actually going back and freeze framing some of these New York scenes. Been to Manhattan a number of times. Love the city. Love seeing it in the past. All my times there, A, the subways, they look just about the same. I think they haven't changed the tile since this movie. (laughs) And I never knew subways used to have bathrooms. This was another thing that sent me to Google to find out Did they really have bathrooms or was that made up for this movie? No, there used to be restrooms in subway terminals. And that frightens me because the restrooms in public places in New York are scary enough. I can't imagine them being subterranean, which the subway has its own issues anyway. Let's not even talk about the elevators. Yeah, I think the urinal now is the train tracks. I mean, honestly, it's you can still go to the bathroom there. People do. But yeah, they just don't have toilets. No, we call the elevators at certain subway platforms just the public toilet. I mean, that's where all the homeless people pee is in that elevator. Never take the elevator. I don't care if you're in a wheelchair. Suck it up. Yeah, but before we get to the train, it's worth pointing out that these are nurses coming out of Roosevelt Hospital. Richard Speck, right? Yes. I mean, 66, he killed eight nurses. They got to do that one. I actually don't know Richard Speck, so that's news to me. Really? Yeah. Well, uh, long story short, uh, he basically uh, broke into a house with eight nursing students, and I think most of them didn't live the night. But I think it was just a thing, right? Like, a nurse being stalked, we hadn't quite gotten to Halloween 2 yet, but I do feel like it was maybe a cliche of the genre. Usually, I I feel like in slashers, we do get a a nurse getting killed. Well, nursing, especially back then, was a stereotypically female role, often young. I mean, it's a way to pick in a young, attractive victim. And they're always wearing dresses. That's the thing is they're sexualized because they're wearing dresses. That was the old outfit. And as women got more comfortable outward sexuality, their dresses got skimpier and revealed more. Now, bringing up dresses and sexuality, I mean, a lot of the bonus features on this, most of the bonus features on this were about the protests around it and how feminists viewed this as an anti-feminist statement because Frank was killing women often right before they would have sex. They would be sexually forward women or women who were provocative in dress. And this is a way to keep women in their place and in the home. I mean, even the poster itself says, I warned you not to go out tonight. And the National Organization of Women lady is all over the bonus features saying, that's just men telling women you need to stay home. (laughs) I I don't know if that can be a complaint lobbied singularly at Maniac. I think that the slasher genre in general has been about men who cut up women for various issues. And misogynist is oftentimes how they're categorized here. I think they have a a point, though. I, I will say this. What makes the Maniac kills feel more pornographic than other slasher movie kills is how submissive the women are when they're put in danger. How long we hold on them, usually laying there without making a noise, waiting, licking their lips, waiting to get stuck. I mean, this nurse's death takes forever to get to the culmination. But the suspense is high on it because it starts off where she's already nervous because she's reading about the kills in the newspaper. Then she gets to the subway. She decides, you know, she's not going to take a cab. She's not going to splurge on it. She hears him behind her, thinks someone's following her, which they are. She can't get her subway tokens out, which is why, like, the Metro card is so amazing now. Although then you just have the Metro card doesn't read and swipe it again, swipe it again, swipe it again. I hate those things. (laughs) But she's, she's trying to get the token out. She gets there. She runs down the stairs. The train's taking away. 
way. She can't get the doors open. She, people are just staring at her inside the empty subway car. That engineer is mocking her, right? I mean, like, it just sits there yes. for a minute with her at the door just banging. That's what I mean. This thing takes forever to get going. Yeah, this takes forever. I wouldn't say she's submissive. She's fleeing the whole time. She doesn't get calm until she thinks she gets away. But there's some fun camera work going on in here. I know they don't have digital effects. I think they did some kind of optical jumping of the negative to like make it more close up on her as she's screaming in the subway and things. I mean, I'm 50% loving the suspense of this. I'm 50% again taken by New York. I'm like, the Coliseum? I remember hearing about the Coliseum. That's not there anymore. And just all of the different landmarks that she's running by. The bathrooms again. I was just taken with the setting of this. Yeah, but once she gets in the stall, she's that whole whimper routine. What, what I'm really saying is that once she sees that death is there, you never see the girl fight, scratch, push back. Only the last girl is going to have any kind of battle in her. By and large, these women just lay there and wait to be killed. And that's what she does here. I mean, in the stall, he plays and makes a game out of it. He could just walk into the stall and take her right over the way, but he makes her believe that he's left and she goes to the mirror and starts laughing. And we all know how this is going to play out. This Suspense, there's no suspense here. It's just when are they going to do it? Well, that is the suspense of that is entirely the suspense. Is he there? Is he there? I know she's probably not going to get away because she's not a character. Right. If she was a character, she might get away. But because we were just introduced to her walking out of the hospital, I know that there's going to be another body count added to this one. But this movie actually is successful in making me feel her fear. That is what I'm saying is suspense. Mm. And as far as the women being the victims... I think there's just something about that where you say the women don't put up fights. That's because I think traditionally now, I mean, Cynthia Rothrock could kick my ass, but even as old as she is today, but traditionally men can overpower women. You'd expect more of a fight from a man. That's why Tom Savini has to get his head blown off immediately. And the guy with the firewood has to get ambushed. Whereas he couldn't stalk a man this way because a man might fight back. I just think that there's something more terrifying about stalking a woman. And if you're going for horror, I think that's more horrific. He's stalking women because it fulfills a sexual desire. And I don't get the sense that he's bisexual. So when he's killing a man is entirely to protect his operation and to make sure that he can do what he really needs to do. They don't linger on it in the same way. But I think that if you watch slasher movies, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, she got a coat hanger. You know what I mean? Like, there's some way of pushing back. But here, these women, it's the next one. It's Rita that I really feel like, it does feel like porn. She's tied up in bed by the end of it, and he's just teasing that knife over her breast. Oh, and the way she's tied up. Now, Rita is a model from one of Anna's photo shoots, and he steals her necklace and follows her home so that he can return it to her and unlock her door. But the way he ties her up... Now, I'm going to reveal something about myself. I am not at all into bondage. It's not <laughs> my thing. But when I go to horror cons, it's definitely some people's thing. And I see these DVD covers, and the way she was tied up really just brings back some of those DVD covers in icky ways. Whether it's your thing or not, it, this could play out as a porn. I mean, honestly, Lustig came from making softcore. I think that he's just comfortable positioning women to look like this. I think that that's why they get the rap from the women's group, is it makes it seem like the women want it in a weird way. 
I'm sorry, and I'm probably going to get a hate mail. But can't you just enjoy a freaking horror movie? Males as victims are not as entertaining because it's usually male on male. And you're like, okay, so two guys are fighting. Whoop-dee-doo. I've watched the John Wayne Gacy murder movie and the Jeffrey Dahmer movie, the biopics that people made about them on Netflix. And they're just not as interesting because you don't buy the, there's no damsel in distress. You want to root for somebody. You can't root for somebody who just got into a bad situation and could overpower their tormentor. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about power dynamics. And I get what you're saying that, yes, by having someone physically weaker. I mean, William Lustig is a big guy. He would overpower many people. And yes, by having a woman that is not trained in self-defense, it amplifies the fear. I just don't know that this movie is made to be scary or suspenseful. I feel icky watching it. But you guys are using words like horror and suspense. I don't know that that's what I'm feeling. It's just more kind of repulsion, revulsion. I'm definitely getting that, but... I'm actually feeling the suspense as well. I really am. Where the revulsion comes in, for me, was entirely in this Rita death. Because not only does he tie her up, he plays with that knife. Mm. And again, I wonder, is she going to just be a captive? I don't know if he's going to kill. I assume he's going to kill eventually. But in some ways, what he could do before he kills is far, far worse. Then he does kill her, but then comes the creepiest fucking thing in this movie he starts to hump the body while saying mommy 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 right i'm gonna say this though as somebody who's taken a few psychology classes and things this is the most distilled baseline pop psychology analysis in the world mommy issues sex issues somebody had heard of freud and came up with let's hump the body and say mommy but it's never that cut and dry but yet there's still something about it that is just, I mean, god damn, I cannot recall. I always had said they'll never kill the kids in movies, and I was been proven wrong in that. But now playing, coming up on its 500th movie review, I think this is our first instance of near necrophilia. There's no actual penetration, so I don't know if you'd call it full-on necrophilia, but it's the closest I've seen in film. And oh my fucking god. I'm pretty sure that there's a term for dry humping a corpse that's not necrophilia. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, let us know. Around the mausoleum, uh, the hookers would know. They would. Maybe that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. (laughs) There it is. And the only completion to all of this mother issue stuff is that we eventually hear through the voiceover, you know, this is where he's really like accusing that, you know, why did you need those other men? There were so many and I needed you. There was something mentioned about a boy being locked in a closet. Uh, We get the sense that mommy's uh, a mother that stayed home and and baked apple pie. This was uh, a lady of the night or at least a promiscuous woman. And they're, they're claiming that that's part of what has traumatized Frank so much. I have no idea what traumatized Frank. Y- you hear in the voiceover, you've been a bad boy again. Please, please, I'll be good. He's got all these scars on him. In the very early scenes, you see him go and he's got like, I mean, Spinelli's not a ripped man. So he's got some moves going on, you know, the man breasts, but there's scars all over them. And I'm like, is he a post-op? transgender i mean what is all the scarring and it's not clear i mean whatever you get 
I think he was abused. I, who knows if the mother was promiscuous or not? It's pretty clear. I mean, it, they don't take a flashback and show it to you, but he has a little boy mannequin and he makes a scar on him. One and one is two. Yes, he was abused child who was witness to promiscuity, sex, and a mother that did not love him in the right way or maybe too much. And now you get what you get. Joe Spadell thought he was doing the world a favor. You know, the people around him say no movie was dealing with this and he was helped bringing child abuse to light. I wouldn't go that far. This is an exploitation flick. And I don't think that psychology students would gain anything by watching this movie. But I can imagine that this was very upsetting to basically see Psycho remade in this really grindhouse way. It has an impact that no disrespect to Hitchcock psycho does not have and yet psycho has an impact that this film doesn't have either they work on two totally different levels i mean this is it's not torture porn but i mean it's torture skinamax isn't it <laughs> it's pretty is it? psycho has such a story and such a mystery and i mean we all watch it knowing who the mother is but at the time it was really somewhat of a mystery is norman covering up the murders for his mother there's more story there here what we have is just grotesque killing and while i think whatever story we get comes from anna if anna wasn't here how is this not serial killer porn but i want to point out though that let's see what year this movie come out 1980 eight years before was what was considered one of the most gruesome and graphic movies ever with the last house on the left and texas chainsaw was yeah six years before this too and i think both of those have more story last house on the left you're really good with that one that one's a great reference for this movie because both of those are really just painful. They're very visceral. Yeah, good word for it. And they both also are lacking in story. Yeah, so Last House on the Left is pure just kill, 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 revenge, kill. But it's supposed to be so graphic and so violent and oh my gosh, you can't watch this and it's just an awful, awful movie. But almost all of the graphic violence takes place off screen and you only see like the people's faces or something whereas this you're getting the blood also and it's very gritty and it's very realistic yeah and i think that that was the selling point right i mean if this movie has a virtue if you want to use that word it is is that it's going to show you what no film before had that its level of gore has been upped a notch you're going to go one step beyond what's been done before yeah and that's what i see this as but it's just a low-rent, grotesque, psycho remake, almost. I mean... Yeah, no, yeah. I don't think anyone should be complimented really for much here. I mean, a lot, in many <laughs> cases, these are amateurs fumbling through their first film. And you can see that. You can see that in absurd plot twists and technical mistakes and what have you. And yet, I can't dismiss the fact that this movie is disturbing me in a way that I rarely feel. Is it disturbing you for what it's showing you, or is it disturbing you because of how disturbed Frank is? Hmm. Hard to distinguish, really, but I don't know that I have as much empathy with Frank as we're asked to believe here. I mean, I think at the end, we're supposed to feel bad for him. I mean, we see him out on the prowl, and, and now suddenly there's these romantic flute musical cues that are going, Woo! I'm like, ah, 
not quite there yet, but it is alarming to be witness to such brutal slayings and to not have any empathy for the victims. I think as someone who has been on the record always saying I want to identify with victims, I'm watching woman after woman go down without feeling a thing for her. Is it wrong that I didn't feel a thing for them at all, and I never do for any of the victims in horror movies? Except for dogs, because you can't do that. I don't know about wrong, but it's usually what makes us get into a movie, is liking the characters. Is it wrong that I usually like the killer? Is it wrong? It's not my preference. I mean, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying that my preference when I watch a horror movie is to want them to get away. Here, it's, yeah, how gory is it going to be when that girl finally gets it? And that's, I think, the more gore-hound feeling. Marjorie, I think, is skewing more towards Chainsaw and Dave from summer school. That is me! Yes! Yeah. See, I think that there's definitely the audience who all they want is the body count. They don't care if they empathize with the victims. They want to see the next kill. And not in a sick way or anything like that, but it's just the fun of it is seeing the effects and the various ingenious ways the makeup people can make a gory death. So I think, Marjorie, that's what you're saying. Stuart, you're saying you're not as into that, although I know for a fact you can appreciate it. (laughs) And you're more wanting a story with a character you can empathize with. And I'm down the middle. Every so often there's an Alice in Nightmare on Elm Street 4 who I like, and a Rick from the same movie. But by and large, if you're not going to give me good characters, and I certainly don't expect them, then just give me good kills and I can at least be entertained. And that's what this movie had. The kills were all different. They were inventive. They were unique. They had your interest because you saw the first one. We had the couple on the blanket on the beach. And what I really loved about that one was I could tell immediately that we're going to go for different kills. I mean, he uses a garrote and does it so strong. I thought it was going to be like a Jason type killer, like super strength, because he doesn't just choke the guy, but blood starts coming out of the neck just from this piano wire type death. Yeah, it's really, really good. And it goes on to just all these different types of kills and different suspense each time. Whereas Friday the 13th and Halloween have kind of the same thing where someone's hiding in the shadows. And you know they're going to get the person, but it's just a matter of how many times they're going to trip and fall before they get caught. These were great because they're so interesting. The other thing, though, about this and why I don't feel any sympathy for Frank, even though I think we're supposed to, is 100% the casting. I mean, I don't know that I could feel sorry for Joe Spinell. If they had picked somebody more conventionally attractive, somebody who we felt could slash should be rehabilitated... I would feel very differently about this movie. But, I mean, Ron Jeremy or the second person who I kept thinking of, especially when I found out he might have been the super of the building, is Schneider from One Day at a Time. Oh my god, he has Schneider's mustache. He really has that mustache. Everyone had that mustache. It was 1980. Well, either, no matter what, the greasy hair, the looks about him and the brutal kills we saw him do you're not going to get me ever to have sympathy for this and i'm just saying if they had picked somebody less grimy looking you could still have picked an ugly person if you washed his hair and cleaned him up and got rid of the porn stash i'm going to argue that that's what gives this movie its real god heart's not the right word but life force is the fact that beyond all of that i can see beyond all of what is a cliched horror movie maniac i do feel like by the end of this the wailing the mommy the childlike quality to him it comes through beyond all of those 
unattractive elements. And I do feel like, no, I mean, Joe Spinell brings an empathy to this character that few could. I just disagree. I, I don't see what Anna sees in Frank. No. I know what Frank sees in Anna, but I don't know why Anna's going out with him. And I just don't at any point think I want to see him cured by love you know i don't want to see his killing stopped because he comes above it i want to see his killing stopped because he's going to be taken out but he's such an everyday man you know what i mean like that could easily be my uncle joe remember my uncle joe yeah yeah i mean that uncle joe could have been hiding bodies in the garage i don't know (laughs) i met your uncle he might have been yes but and she's so by comparison so strikingly beautiful compared to him (laughs) And compared to anyone, probably, let's she, be honest. Well, she's extraordinarily attractive. Yeah. He's extraordinarily not. I mean, yes. the, the, there's a gulf that cannot be bridged there. But how much of his appearance is for the role, though? I mean, obviously, he's a large Italian man. But I, I feel that, like, you know, they had him not wash his hair and look kind of slobbish for this movie. Yeah, well, they didn't, just to point out, they didn't have him do anything. William Lustin could not give him a direction. This is all Joe Spinell doing whatever the hell Joe Spinell wanted to do. Joe Spinell said at one point, I'm going to put on sunglasses and a coat and nail a scalp to a mannequin like a hairdresser. And Lustig went, okay. You know, the character is a representation, I think a self-representation about how Joe feels, which is that he's got this beauty and the beast quality, that he is in many ways a disgusting man, but yet- He married a porn star. Yeah, he can still charm the ladies and he can still have a, you know, a very active sex life and do well in that environment. I found that they work together, like, the whole tone of the movie changed whenever they were on screen together, except, like, in the cemetery chase, but for a while it just seemed kind of calm, it seemed the music was a little different- and I love the score of this yeah. movie, the opening music and all of that. Just so 80s, but so great. But yeah, you mentioned the cemetery, and that's where this all comes to a climax. Is they're going to deliver a wreath to the grave of his mother, and <laughs> he just can't take it anymore. He's got to choke the bitch. But the cemetery chase is really good. Yeah, you know, we've mentioned a lot of slashers as being influenced, but again, want to stress, Lustig came from Argento. He is the huge missing puzzle piece between Hitchcock and the 70s slashers. He was an Italian gore director who, yeah, kind of made a Hitchcockian slasher genre. And Suspiria, this ending is straight out of the beginning of Suspiria with the way that they're running and the way it's lit and all of that. He had just worked with Argento. They were borrowing props from Argento. This is an Argento moment. They even wanted Goblin, which is Argento's rock band of choice, to do the score here. That would have been perfect. Yeah, they, I love the goblin music we heard in when I watched the French Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, exactly. They're very memorable here. But you're right, the score that they did get was good. And the composer, Jay Chataway, he, I think he did just about every episode of Star Trek afterwards. Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. He had a big career. So they, they unlike most of the people, uh, he didn't stay in the shadows. He would go on to prominence. Well, yeah, with this chase, I mean... She is the last girl. She fights back and she gets a gore scene as almost as good as any. She doesn't kill Frank. And I kind of thought she might. And I also thought she might do something really stupid and run into a mausoleum. Yeah. But she 
grabs a shovel, and when she cuts his arm, the blood splats, I mean, just all over the place. It's a gusher. Tom Savini. Yeah, can't complain about Tom's work in this. He is giving you buckets full here. But I do feel like it's weird that her story just ends. We can presume that she gets away and tells the cops, because the cops come to his apartment at the conclusion of the film, but it just reinforces what I've been feeling. We don't care about the women at all here. This is Joe Spinell's show. Frank Zito is the only focal point, and whatever he does to anyone is our entertainment. But it's not just Psycho and Argento being ripped off. I mean, I got a severe flashback with the mom coming out of the grave. That's kind of carry, but... This poor actress, I think it was just some technician that they said, we need a, a mother corpse here. They put live maggots on her face and all of this makeup. and <laughs> That's not worth it because I couldn't see him even on the Blu-ray. And then Joe Spinell is running around. He has asthma. As soon as he runs to the corpse and leans over, he vomited on her in the first take. <laughs> so maybe all of that was right. Marjorie kept asking me during the movie, does he have asthma with a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to give him an inhaler. Yeah, he did have asthma. Yeah, for sure. And th- and and this poor woman dressed up as his mother found out the hard way. Yeah. They shouldn't have done this. Spinell even said, I can't believe we even attempted. We're like, we need a carry moment. We need a carry moment. They did it. They didn't think it would work. But audiences jumped. And so they left it in the film. But I feel that there should have been more of this mother stuff in the movie, not just at the end, but sprinkled throughout. I think that we needed more than just, mommy, mommy, I'm sorry, a few times. I think that we they should have done a little bit more with that. And this movie was a very short movie. And even adding 15 minutes onto it would still make it pretty short. But we could have had more of this mother stuff going on that I think would have helped it. It also probably would have broken the bank. Well, just, yes, because I mean, it's cheap. Yeah. In fact, Lustig said that he let scenes go on so long because they were afraid they weren't going to hit theatrical releasing links. That they, some of these kills that I've been complaining that it just feels like it takes forever. Well, they wanted to shorten them. They just wanted to make sure that someone would buy it first. Yeah, I actually think that the length of the kills helps them. It makes them more impactful to me. But the zombie mom did seem to come out of nowhere. I was glad that it was just in his head, because I actually was about to switch the arrow to red. If all of a sudden at the end he'd been haunted by his zombie mom the whole time, and it wasn't just he was crazy. No, and they have a humdinger of a conclusion beyond that. I, the zombie mom's kind of whatever. I could take or leave it. But the other vision that he has here, the, the vision of of his own death. That's pretty remarkable. I think this was amazing. I thought this was inventive. The way the mannequins come to life and start whispering and talking and killing him and pulling him apart and ripping his skin off and they rip his head off. It was great. Yeah, this is a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, no pun intended. <laughs> This level of dismemberment gore, I mean, sure, it guarantees an X rating, and that may be why we didn't see it, but, I mean, this is reminding me of that kill we talked about from Day of the Dead. Yes. I I believe it's the warm-up. I actually do believe that, yeah, they may have ripped off elements from Romero in Dawn of the Dead, getting Tom Savini here, but, yeah, they ended up inspiring that sequel because, yeah, the dismemberment in Day of the Dead is nothing compared to what this has. No, this, I mean, with the intestines coming out, the way they pull the head off the body, if this is where they spent, like, that money versus other scenes, it's well spent. This was a shocker. But I'm curious, 
about a couple of things. I mean, he's seeing himself get ripped apart by all his victims. And I love that this is like their revenge. I mean, we talked for quite a bit about how they were powerless and everything. But here in this movie, and admittedly, that president of the National Organization of Women was damning it without ever seeing it. But they get their revenge. They win in the end by literally ripping him limb from limb. But I'm trying to figure out what's really going on. We're seeing what Frank is imagining to be real. But when the cops come in, because Anna, I guess, told the cops it was Frank and here's where he lives. And two plainclothes cops, just two, it, I guess it was the 1980. Either two was all they could afford or that's all they had back then. Budget. Yeah. yeah. And they see Frank stabbed in the stomach. Suicide? I mean... I think he stabbed himself. I think that he was punishing himself because his mother told him he'd been a bad boy. He was going to go in the closet again. I think this was his punishment. And in his head, what was happening was his mannequins came to life as the women he killed and in turn killed him. But he wasn't really dead. Yeah, I don't know that the movie is worthy of asking the deep why questions, but yeah, I take it to mean that his dementia, his his mania, as it were, eventually drove him to turn the knife on himself rather than... He couldn't kill Anna. Maybe if he was able to plunge the knife in Anna, he wouldn't have made himself the next kill, but he is. And presumably dead, although they gotta have the hedge the bets, eye opens conclusion. I thought that the ending was setting up for a sequel because we had Anna getting away and his eye opened at the end. Perfect setup for a sequel for a horror movie. You have a victim getting away who can come back, Jamie Lee Curtis, Halloween. And then you have the killer who is not dead like everyone thinks, just like in Halloween with Michael Myers who gets up after being shot and falling out a window. They almost made it. They almost made a sequel. I saw the footage they made to try to raise funds. Thank God they didn't make it. It was going to be Frank on the run. He's a television children's entertainer like Bozo. He's in full clown makeup and he kills the parents who abuse children. He's like an Avenger, not like Marvel superheroes, but like just standard avenging type stuff. I kind of like that as a premise, but not as a sequel to Maniac. That wouldn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, a television clown that gets letters from children and decides to go hurt the parents that are hurting those kids. Someone make that. But yeah, Mr. Robbie Maniac 2. Yeah, the test reel was awful. At that point, Spinell himself was deep in alcoholism and just not doing his best work. They had tried to pair him again with Carolyn Monroe. They did a trauma film called The Last Horror Movie, which ended up going like four million over budget and being nearly unreleasable. I, they tried. In many different ways, they tried to have a successful follow-up to Maniac. I think the closest they got to was the Maniac Cop series that Lustig, the director, would end up making three movies which aren't narratively connected to this, but are about a vigilante cop in grimy New York killing innocent people. That's probably as close to a sequel as you're going to get. Well, Marjorie Stewart. Do you recommend Maniac, Marjorie? Oh, hell yes. This was a great movie. I can't wait to see the remake with Elijah Wood because I cannot imagine Little Hobbit Guy playing a deranged killer. I just don't see that. But this one was great. The kills were inventive. They were all different. So once I figured out they were different, it kept my interest instead of just sometimes a boring slasher flick. I thought he was delightfully creepy. And it's a shame that he died, you know, not just because he died, but because he could have gone on to play many, many creepy killers. But this was good. It was gritty. It had old New York. New York's one of my favorite cities. I love 
old, scary, gritty New York. I think this is really great, and it's a throwback to the old serial killers of the 70s, because we used to have a lot more serial killers than we have now. The internet's killed serial killers. That's just not going to happen anymore. Now they just go on Craigslist. Exactly. <laughs> what a shame. Yeah, I know. This is a, a recommend. If you like horror movies and you like like a crazy killer movies, this is your movie. It's wonderful. Spinell was great. And I think everything was inventive about this. And of course, Thomas Savini. Who doesn't love Thomas Savini? Sex Machine. A character he played. You don't know that from personal experience. No, no, no. I'm not saying <laughs> You Tom better Savini hope was- if she never meets him, Arnie, that might be the end. Oh, people we- <laughs> call him Sex Machine all the time. We have met him, actually, yeah. recently. Stuart. I can't be as effusive as you, Marjorie. This is a primitive movie. I mean, I tend to celebrate movies made by artists, right? Like, this was artistically well-crafted. Even if it's a low budget, even if it's a no budget, I usually can recognize when I see talent. And the truth is, this is not a really well-made movie by most stretches of the imagination, which is not to say that it's not an effective movie and it doesn't achieve what it's going after. There is something unshakable about Maniac. When I watch it, it's not fear. It's revulsion. I honestly can say there's something that gets to my core when I see it that the, this hives. I just break out all over me. I, I think there's very little entertainment value unless you are someone that likes to watch graphic violence, faces of death. If that's your cup of tea, this is great. But I do think it is a very effective portrait of the time and place. And I think... It's an essential slasher movie. I honestly say there's been better made slasher movies, but if someone came to me and said, I never saw a slasher movie before, which one should I watch? Above Halloween, above Friday the 13th, above any of them. Maniac. This. Oh, Jesus Christ. They're going to put that on the next DVD release. (laughs) Above Halloween, above Friday the 13th. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what I'm saying. But they're going to take it out of context. (laughs) Hear what I'm saying. This is not the best one. It is the most definitive. The most definitive slasher. It boils down to its core what a slasher movie is and gives it to you raw. I mean raw. And so for that, I... it's really not about recommend or not. I, I recommend it as an artifact. So there you go. I would never want a slasher film virgin to be deflowered in so violent and grotesque a way. <laughs> Honestly... I'd send them to the shallow end of the pool. Stuart, this is like if you had an infant and you wanted to teach it to swim, you just suggested <laughs> taking it on the diving board and dropping it. No, no, no. I'd be on like the cruise liner dropping it into the Indian Ocean with floaties. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> that's what going to Maniac first is. Yeah, that's my analogy for you saying, <laughs> start here. Yeah, I know. You might as well, though. I mean, this is it. Teenage virgin wants to lose it. Stuart introduces her to John Holmes. I recommend this to the already indoctrinated. I think if you like horror, this is a good one. It's a weaker recommend. I mean, I kind of exuberantly said that Tom Savini kill made it a recommend, but one great scene doesn't actually make the movie a recommend. That makes it a, hey, go to YouTube and find this scene. But I was on the fence. Because this movie had a lot going for it. As Marjorie pointed out, the great Savini effects, the really creepy performance by Frank... (laughs) See, I consider them one and the same person. Frank Spinell. But even at its under 90 minute runtime, man, there were parts that dragged. (laughs) Mostly the dating scenes. And the characters? What characters? 
So I really was a bit torn, but after I sat with this film for a couple days, the more I thought fondly of the good moments. And I do feel like this is essential watching for any slasher fan or especially splatter fans. And it's amazing that I took so long to get to it. I mean, this film is over 30 years old, almost 35 years old. And this is my first time watching it. And yet now I'm hoping others can learn from my mistake and hear this podcast. And this is one of the best movies we've ever reviewed at Now Playing for a Now Playing review, because it doesn't matter that we've told you all of the nothing in this movie. (laughs) No, it certainly... We can't spoil it for you. Yeah. No. Yeah, its pleasures are entirely what it shows you. Yes. Knowing everything we've said will ruin none of the fun of this movie, unlike so many movies where I'm like, if you don't know this movie, stop now. Fight Club, for example, or something like that, where we tell you the ending and we've already screwed you over. Here, go watch this movie if you're a fan of horror. Now, this is not a transcendent horror film that will appeal to the non horror fans. But if you're into the genre and you don't mind something that looks a little more grimy and things, this is actually one of the better ones, and I expect it to be one of the worser ones. So, yeah, a, a weak recommend. Yeah, we're, we're all on the same page. Three Green Arrows. I wasn't sure, but I know you guys like Rob Zombie, and I think this is the movie Rob Zombie has always wanted to make, honestly. I'm surprised they didn't get him for the reboot. Yeah, I'm surprised that they're doing a remake now this given that this is our christmas slasher film (laughs) the one i'm going back to in my mind is black christmas and i'm betting next week is nothing like this week i mean remember how they took black christmas the little sorority house killer film and turned it into some jaundice bald creature coming down the chimney i kind of expect that There'll be a New York killer, maybe with a mommy issue, but I cannot imagine they'll remake it like this. You know, Lustig, he did two commentaries. I listened to both. One recorded in 2010. This remake still hadn't happened. He said, oh, they've approached me, but I don't know how you do it. And I feel the same way. I don't know how you take whatever is here. He was very freely admitting. He's like, there's no plot here. There's no movie here without Joe. It's like, it is what it is. Like, what is there to take? What can they take away and make? I mean, whatever it's going to be, they're going to have to create something new. That's what I will predict, and that's what we'll find out next week. Well, in the meantime, I can't imagine there's anyone listening to this podcast who likes Lord of the Rings. (laughs) How about if you like Leprechaun? You can hear all seven Leprechaun reviews. They're all out there. It's more of a Halloween thing than a Christmas thing. Or maybe it's a St. Patrick's thing. Maybe you want to get them now and save them for St. Patrick's Day. But we are doing our donation drive. All the shows we do every Tuesday. And I don't know that this message gets through from listeners I talk to. This show, this free episode, is done thanks to people who donate to our show. And we have people who donate to our show. I can count them on one hand, but we have a few, even when we're not doing a drive. One person out there has actually set up a recurring monthly payment for us, just because they enjoy and understand that without them, we couldn't do this show every Tuesday for free. Now, as a thank you, we give bonus podcasts. Now, we're not selling these podcasts. And we really hope if you enjoy this show, even if you don't like Leprechaun or Lord of the Rings, but you like Now Playing and you want to see Now Playing continue, that you'll take a little bit of your Christmas money that you get or were planning to give and donate to support Now Playing. $5, $10, $100. 
whatever you can afford, we so, so appreciate. But if you get $15 or more, you can choose a thank you gift. And we kind of look at this as like a PBS pledge drive. We've talked about it, honestly. Do we give coffee mugs? Do we give water bottles? Do we give tote bags? Be perfectly honest, it would be easier on us if we did. We could just sit back, let a printer screen print some bags, drop them in the mail. But we know that if you guys are supporting us, you like the podcasts we do. And so what we do as a thank you is a lot of work on us, but we do more podcasts and we make them exclusive to people who donate during a limited time. And yeah, we hope that it motivates people to donate who normally wouldn't, the people who won't just set up a monthly recurring payment. Maybe they want to hear these shows, but even if you don't, I really hope that you enjoy our show enough to want to see us continue and make a financial donation. That's right. And so if you donate this Friday, you're going to get Elijah Wood early. We'll be talking about him next week in Maniac 2012. But uh, he's in The Unexpected Journey, the first part of our Hobbit series that will be concluding Silver Level Donation. We've released the first three shows way back in September, October. We've covered that original Lord of the Rings. Now it's time to get to the rest of it. Peter Jackson has made The Hobbit into three movies. We begin that journey with Unexpected Journey this Friday. And again, the gold level donation, also $15 or more, is the seven Leprechaun films. If you go platinum, $30 or more, you get reviews of all six Lord of the Rings films, reviews of all seven Leprechaun films, plus three exclusive bonus reviews only for platinum donors, the animated Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Return of the King. And all of these shows are only going to be available until December 31st, Come January 1st, we're tucking them away. Be looking at a new donation series sometime mid to late spring next year. But if you want to hear our reviews of the Leprechaun or Lord of the Rings films, you only have a few more weeks. So Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Thanks for having me. And until next week, I gotta stop or they'll take you away from me. she was gonna get killed at the end. I'm glad that she didn't. Yeah, but they all end up living in a mental hospital. I know, but at least it was a happy ending. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Maniac Retrospective Series. People die, but in a painting or a picture, they're yours forever. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I had a very lovely evening. Did you uh, want to come up for a drink? Come back to com each week as we review another Maniac film. Honestly, I just find the whole thing really creepy. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of series such as G.I. Joe, Transformers, Tron, Terminator, Star Trek, Spider-Man, The Avengers, and more. Anything you want. I want you to have a good time. You can also find individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Fight Club, Godzilla, Pacific Rim, and more. You got to stop. Or they'll take you away from me. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com.
No kidding. You'll be there. Yes, and so will five million other guys. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. It's not all for art's sake, you know. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Can you give me a hand? Yeah, sure. What do you need? A, A hand behind you. Now Playing's Maniac Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Stop looking at me. Focus on your work. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You talking to me? I'm talking to you. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Now promise me you won't tell. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. You knew they didn't love you. Not like I loved you. Not like me. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'm I'm just gonna ask you to leave now. Please. Being alone isn't going to help you. Believe me. I know. They don't know when to stop. They never know when to stop. That's why they have to be stopped. It is your right. You're right. But not like that. Not that way. Please. They'll take you away from me. You have to be careful not to listen to me. We can't live like this. I have to go out. And each time it's like this, I get so scared that they'll take you away. But they won't if you do what I say. They won't take you away, not ever. Not ever, I swear. Caroline Monroe, who we've covered before. She was uh, one of the bad Bond villainesses in Spy Who Loved Me. Do you remember her? No. She was in a helicopter. Uh, Roger Moore took her out. Those films are honestly a blur, and I fear I'll have to rewatch them all when the next Bond film comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You've seen one, you've seen them all. But uh, she was in there, and I thought she was pretty memorable. But, uh... Stuart, I'm impressed. You know your serial killers. I do. I'm on now playing. How could I not at this point? (laughs) They would. Maybe that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. (laughs) There it is. I always thought the ultimate was when you ask her for Adidas and she buys you zips. Well, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. Hello? (laughs) I'm your fucking wife. (laughs) Was. Yeah. (laughs) What's funny is I thought I said Marjorie, Jacob. (laughs) So Marjorie, Stuart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Thanks for not calling me Jacob. Yeah, that was hard. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.